You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music Benjamin Booker got his start in journalism but instead of following in our footsteps as a rock critic he's on his way to becoming a rock star I'm Greg Cott and I'm Jim DeRogatis the New Orleans blues singer Benjamin Booker joins us to perform songs from his self-titled debut then we've got a new one from the golden god Robert Plant that's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim, we're going to talk about this new Robert Plant album. And I know people have been going on and on for the last few years about when is Robert Plant going to get back together again with Led Zeppelin. And frankly, I don't really care about Led Zeppelin anymore. I don't think Robert Plant does in terms of making new music that you can get excited about. Well, it could never be Zeppelin without Bonham. Exactly. But I am looking forward to new Robert Plant music because he's consistently uh, challenging himself, whereas maybe like Jimmy, a new Jimmy Page album wouldn't get me nearly as excited. No. We're going to talk about that later on in the show, but first we've got some music news. I'm lightning on my feet, and that's what they don't see, Mm-mm. that's what they don't see, Mm-mm. I'm dancing on my own, I make the moves up as I go, and that's what they don't know, Mm-mm. that's what they don't know. Greg, I know that was a high point for you of the MTV Video Music Awards the other <laughs> night. Taylor Swift singing Shake It Off. That is her vocal, Isolated. A website put her vocal minus the backing music out there to kind of poke fun at Taylor Swift. They did the same thing with Beyonce. Uh, Beyonce fared a little better. Her mm-hmm. vocal sounded a little better. You know, I, I got some sympathy, though. I've, I've been in the recording studio. You isolate anybody's vocals, and they don't sound that good without the backing track. So if Beyonce... Beyonce and Taylor Swift's vocals were naked. There was nothing as racy as uh, last year's Miley Cyrus duet with Robin Thicke. That got the ire of parents groups, in particular the Parents Television Council, which urged MTV not to repeat the lasciviousness of mm. Miley's twerking on this year's VMAs. And the Parents Television Council was was happy about that, but still said there is a lack of positive messaging out there for women. There is still way more female sex than is healthy on the VMAs. But you take that out of the VMAs, I don't think there's anything left. That is Lily, a 1993 track from Kate Bush, the British singer-songwriter who made her first live concert appearance in 35 years this week in London, the first of 22 shows at the London Hammersmith Apollo, the site of her last previous live concert appearance in 1979. This was a big deal in the UK press, in the worldwide press, really. People were tweeting about it all night. 
There was all sorts of uh, blogging going on, excited fans exchanging emails and texts about this event. It was a three-hour set in which she kicked off with this obscure, relatively obscure track from her 1993 album, The Red Shoes. There was a backing chorus, a huge band. The backing chorus included her teenage son, Bertie, who Kate credited with uh, basically encouraging her to get back out there and start performing again for the first time in years. Bush gave an interview, one of her rare interviews in uh, 2011 with uh, Mojo Magazine, in which she basically said she quit the road, she quit preparing for shows because it was just so exhausting. And one could see it from this show. It was an incredibly elaborate theatrical experience. She's going to do 21 more shows, but there is no sign that she is going to do more shows after that, anything outside of London. Fans may have to wait a while longer for that, but uh, it is nice to have Kate Bush back after all these years, Jim. I couldn't agree more. We're both big fans. Somebody else who's coming back in a big way, and something we never thought we'd see happen, Greg, is Prince, who is about to release not one, but two albums at the same time via Warner Brothers Records. Now, he sold millions and millions of albums for Warners in the 80s, but then he split with them very contentiously, writing Slave on his forehead, changing his name to the artist formerly known as Prince, and an unpronounceable symbol. He he was never going to go back to Warner Brothers. He put out records under his own NPG records. Now he's going back to Warner Brothers. How about that? And they're happy to have him. They're letting him put out these two records, Art Official Age, which is described as as a solo album, kind of contemporary R&B, soul, and funk, and a record called Plectrum Electrum, which is a very Prince title, which has a new band. I'm excited about this, Third Eye Girl, which features three women on bass, drums, and guitar backing him up. So Prince coming back to the major label system with two records. We'll see how he fares. That is Maurice Williams with a song called Stay, a huge hit in 1960. In fact, it was not only a number one hit, but it is the shortest number one hit in Hot 100 history. One minute, 37 seconds. Now, the reason we're talking about this, Jim, is that uh, short is better when it comes to hits on commercial radio. Why is that? We can go back to the era of the 78 RPM record and even the 45 RPM, where essentially the song length was limited by the hardware. You couldn't put any more than three, three and a half minutes worth of music on a 78 or a 45. So therefore, just by strictly the limits of the form, you couldn't get a longer song on on the radio. When we started to see the technology improve as we went on through the decades, especially in the 60s and 70s, we started to see artists starting to stretch the format. Uh, Dylan going to six minutes with Like a Rolling Stone. Led Zeppelin going to eight minutes with Stairway to Heaven. They were figuring out ways to work in longer song lengths and getting them actually played on the radio. But in the last two decades, when the technology has even improved further, now that we're in the fully into the digital age, you would think all bets are off. Any length of song would be welcome because the technology is there to support it. We have seen a regression back to the three-minute song length, you know, the three-minute rule for radio. If you go longer than three, three and a half minutes, you don't got a chance to get this song played on radio. 
Why is that? It has nothing to do with the limitations of digital technology. Experts are now telling us, and we've known this for a long time, it is commerce that's dictating how long these songs have got to be. They're trying to fit in more songs into a tighter space so that they can keep more listeners, have listeners tuning in and not tuning out, and therefore sell more advertising around it. Is there a perfect length for a pop song on the radio? Greg, let's throw it out to the listeners. Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Now, you mentioned commerce being part of this, Greg, and there is a radio station in Calgary, Canada, which is uh, putting out a big publicity push on the fact that they are now playing twice as many hits in every hour. It's a top 40 station, 90.3 amp radio, home of the uh, new quick hits Format. They used to play 12 songs by the likes of Katy Perry and Taylor Swift in an hour. Now they're playing 24. How are they doing this? Not by selling less advertising, but by cutting the songs in half. It's being defended by the company that owns some 90 radio stations, New Cap in Canada. On All Things Considered, Melissa Block spoke to Steve Jones, who's the vice president of the Canadian firm New Cap, which owns 90 stations. He came up with this quick hits format. And he was saying, I quote, Before Twitter, I don't think anyone said, Wow, I wish we could communicate in shorter bursts. But we were observing in two and a half years of consumer research leading up to this change, that people were suffering from a sort of iPod fatigue, where they would put a song on, listen to it for 90 seconds or two minutes, and then hit the next song. <laughs> you know? Now, you know, I don't have a problem with medleys or mixtapes, DJs doing mixes on the radio, but this is a top 40 station that's saying we play the hits, but they really should be saying we play half the hits. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Always Waiting by our guest this week, Benjamin Booker. Despite that song's lyric, Benjamin hasn't always been waiting for success. In fact, it's happened pretty quickly for him in the music world, especially with nods from the famed L.A. blog Aquarium Drunkard and the ear of famous rough trade A&R man Jeff Travis. I also wrote about him and shared his music on the show after seeing him at this year's South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas. And what I was struck by was uh, Booker's voice, that raspy voice that he had, and his ability to combine all of these influences from punk to soul to blues in this duo format. Plus, he's an exhilarating live performer. Benjamin Booker recently issued his first proper album on ATO Records, and he followed that up with a performance on Letterman. When he visited our studio during a recent tour, we spoke with him and members of his Tampa-born New Orleans-based band, Max Norton on drums and Alex Spoto on bass. Tell us how you got started in music, because I've read the story of being 13 years old and a Jack White poster on your wall from a Guitar World magazine article, right? I think it was Guitar World, yeah. I, I think, think I wrote that article. Did you? I did the first serious? big Guitar World <laughs> feature on Jack White. Yes, I had that poster on my wall for a long time. But I didn't play guitar, I guess, play in bands for 10 years after that. <laughs> really? So you weren't one of these kids who just grew up playing the guitar? I played guitar at home, but I was too terrified to go out and play shows, <laughs> yeah. What was getting you excited besides Jack White on the wall musically? 
Uh, I used to skate when I was a kid, so I listened to a lot of like 80s punk stuff, germs, you know. But that's an interesting uh, confluence of people that seem to have figured into your music. I mean, germs, black flag, Jack White, you've got this blues thing going on. How did you talk about that? Because the, the punk thing, first of all, precedes you by a couple of decades, and as well as uh, some of the blues influences that you've talked about in your music. How did you discover this particular music? I guess I was just like really obsessive about music. I did music journalism when I got to college, but I was just one of those people who would find out about a band and then go and find like the 10 bands that they listen to and like go mm-hmm. back and back and back until mm-hmm. there's nothing left. <laughs> so what was the big light bulb moment with like the blues? What, uh, what said, oh wow, this music is speaking to me as this teenage kid growing up in Tampa. What, what was it about that music that was speaking to you and who specifically was doing that? I went to like a CD store and got like a Robert Johnson complete discography. When we were growing up, I guess for like the last 10 years, really, there's just been a lot of electronic music and like really complicated stuff. And it was really good to hear just a guy and a guitar, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'd be pulling into the school parking lot blasting that and people were giving me weird looks. (laughs) (laughs) I I can only imagine, man. I mean, you know, so we're talking about like roughly what, about 10 years ago, right? So this is early 2000s. And, you know, that, that stuff sounds positively primitive by the comparison to, you know, the electronic Animal stuff that was going on. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so did you, did you play along with those records? Did you, you know, were you playing guitar along with them? Or how did that sort of seep into what you ended up doing stylistically? Well, there was also a lot of, like, folk punk bands from Florida. Like, there's a band called This Bike's a Pipe Bomb or, like, Against Me. Like, a lot of those bands were doing, like, folk music but, like, amped up kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I think I really just took a lot of guitar playing from, from that kind of stuff. Wow, cool. Uh, we're going to talk some more music with Benjamin Booker in a minute, but how about a song, Ben? What, what are you going to play for us? Uh, we're we're going to do a song called Happy Homes first.
That's Happy Homes by Benjamin Booker, live on Sound Opinions. We'll have more with Benjamin Booker in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we'll review the new album from another modern blues man, Robert Plant.
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And our guest this week is Benjamin Booker. The young New Orleans artist released his self-titled debut this year on ATO Records. And Greg and I think he's one to watch, especially because of the way he's taken the blues and filtered it through soul and punk rock. You know, Greg, so many artists just just have this, this precious attitude about the blues. It's like it's a museum piece. It is alive and well in Booker's music. Let's return to our conversation with him. Here, Benjamin Booker talks about the decision to make his first album. Yeah, we didn't really go in with like a whole lot of planning on how we were going to do anything. Since you're doing analog, there's not like a whole lot of room to play around. It's mostly just live uh, tracking. Like we play almost all the songs, I think, of one or two takes and just playing it live. And then we went back over and added some stuff. But most of the record is just getting in there, pressing play and playing the songs. Yeah. And most of these tunes you developed live playing with just you and Max on drums, right? No, I, I wrote the songs like a year before I met Max and was playing around New Orleans, like solo acoustic shows. Wow. And then uh, I like met Max, uh, I think through Alex. I'm not sure how that happened. But uh, I started playing shows with Max and then uh, he moved out to New Orleans. So we started playing electric shows and it was awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's when Greg and I first became aware of you. It was as a duo, but mm-hmm. that was never the plan to just stay as a duo. No, no, no. It, we started touring really fast and there just wasn't enough time to get like a, a full band together or find a bass player. It was just, as soon as we started playing, we were playing like every week or a couple times a week. And then we started touring. So we just had to get out there. Yeah. Whoever was around <laughs> got in the van. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, and you know, as Jim was saying, there's, you know, there's very sketchy information about you right now, which seems impossible in this day and age when everything is on the internet and you can find out anything about anyone yeah. at any time. You, on the other hand, are kind of coming out of the blue. When I saw you at South by Southwest, the reason I went to see you was because Jeff Travis of Rough Trade said, you got to go see this guy. Oh, yeah. And I, I think Jeff has had some involvement in what, what you've been doing as well. But Travis is a noted A&R guy who's been signing bands for 30, 40 years, all the way back to things like the Smiths in the, in the 80s. Right. Yeah. So it happened kind of quickly for you, it seemed like. You're on a fairly prominent label with basically no other music out there in sort of the public sphere. What was that like, that process of, of sort of going from you know, a speck on the map in Tampa, Florida to, you know, being this guy that got signed by uh, ATO Records. I think we're still a speck, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I would, Last year I was just like working as a barista in like November. So this has all been, <laughs> <laughs> it's all been really fast. Uh, yeah. I don't know. The, the rough trade, I mean, I grew up listening to rough trade bands and stuff and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. It, it's been terrifying, but uh, also a lot of fun. Uh, we're just, show up and play shows wherever they tell us to go so that's mm-hmm. that's how it feels right now i don't know were you sending out demos or anything like that or people were people just coming and seeing the shows and saying, the, what do you got kid the way it happened was uh i had recorded like a few demos like on a laptop and like shared them with friends and then this blog in la aquarium drunkard posted them and then they put them on Sirius. and then i just got some calls and emails after that so mm-hmm. i mean that was it i don't know right you're 
uh, allegedly a journalism student, right? I mean, I, I God bless you, you know, for attempting that. Uh, <laughs> I, tried, I, to, I, tried to make some real money after that, right? Um, but so you, you, you're aware of the lay of the land of, of what the music industry is like. And, and what were your considerations going into that, diving into that? Was this an aspiration of yours? Hey, let's get signed. What was your thinking going into the process? I was planning on, like I told you, I grew up listening to small punk labels and stuff. So I had been planning on putting it out on like a small Florida label, just like putting out a seven inch and then like playing shows when I could. And after I got a, a management, when they went on Sirius, there, it was just an option like, hey, do you want to send these out to labels and stuff? Mm-hmm. But I didn't think that we would be like on ATO and Rough Trade Records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, apparently I've, we've heard the record now. And it it seems like they pretty much let you do your thing. It wasn't a case of, you know, hey, we got some ideas about how we could tweak this a little bit and make it a little bit more no, commercially yeah. friendly. I had heard horror stories about people and labels. And, like, we had six days to record and, like, two days to mix the record. And we just went in, recorded it, and turned it in. And they said, okay. And that was it. There was no – they didn't – yeah. It's been the best. They haven't said anything, like, the entire time. Yeah. Very cool. I want to uh, shift to your songwriting process, but maybe the best way to get into that is to have you guys play another song. Before we we hear it, though, tell us, uh, uh, Benjamin, how this one came together and and what prompted you to write it. This was probably the first song that I wrote. Uh, I had gone to a hospital uh, in Miami uh, to visit a cousin that I had that was uh, getting really sick, and uh, he ended up passing away like a month later. But uh, I guess doing something like that, uh, the drive back was like, it makes you think about things, I guess, in your relationship yeah. to other people. And so I, I kind of got in a tiff with my parents and stuff on this, like, five-hour car ride. It was, I guess it was the point where I realized that, like, uh, my parents are very different people than I am. And uh, there's just going to be this generation gap. And uh, I just had to live with that kind of thing, you know. Mm. For, for, I don't know. For my parents, like, they're just like, well, what are you doing? You're out there doing this rock and roll thing. Like, and it's very foreign to them. So, Well, listen, Greg and I would give them a call and happily tell them that journalism had no more solid a future. Yeah. It's, than, true. Than, than, it's true. <laughs> I, mean, I never thought I'd think that, you know, like punk rock was maybe a better career choice than writing for a newspaper. It's, yeah. So what is the name of the song, Benjamin? This song's called Have You Seen My Son. Oh, yeah. 
Have you seen my son? All right, so you threw out before that story about being inspired by the cousin who was sick and the contentious five-hour. We got to dig deeper there. Because when I first heard this on the record, I said, what is that strange military interlude, uh, you know, the snare drum martial march doing in the middle there that <laughs> Matt Max throws in, right? And now, so your dad was in the Navy, right? Yeah. And you weren't going to be a good boy. You wouldn't, he wasn't going to be proud of his son unless you joined the military. They're is still that trying the- to get me to join the military. Now? Every day. You tell him about the guy who signed the Smiths, who's putting out your record, and the Dave Matthews label, and the Lollapalooza, and Jack White asked you to tour. You're still a failure. I guess they just want me to be safe, you know? Uh, In the military? One. (laughs) I don't know. You get the health insurance. I went a long time without health insurance. Be all you can be. Thank God for Obamacare. So, So what was, I mean, they just had different visions. But they accepted your sister, right? She sang opera? Yeah, she's doing board game best right now at uh, Princeton. Wow. So that kind of music they understand. Love it. Love it. (laughs) But yours they don't. No. I mean, they haven't been to any shows. They saw me on uh, Letterman. I think that was the first time they'd seen me. And uh, I called my mom. She was just like, I can't. I can't understand anything you're saying. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You know, 
Yeah, I mean, but they you, love me. We we love each other. We just it's a definitely a different world. Well, you said very it, different people. I think I'm getting a hint. Yeah, of what's what it going to be? Means. He's got to win a Grammy. No, that's not enough. He's got to win an Oscar. <laughs> I don't know. This is right, right at home, right in the four walls of his very own house. He had something to rebel against. You know. <laughs> Now, well, that's good. That's good, though. It's you got, good for you your got artistic the cool juices. Parents who are accepting of all the, you know, the rock and roll and the electronic music. And yeah. I'm a big Skrillex fan, just like my son <laughs> is, you know, you know, and right away you'd want to like say, no, God, that's wrong. There's something wrong about that. But you really it sounded like you had a you had to sort of fight uphill all the way to do do what exactly what you wanted. Yeah, they're just, they're very religious and very practical, you know, conservative mm-hmm. military folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so you threw that feedback solo just for them, I'm sure. Right now, yeah, yeah, song. they love it. They, <laughs> they absolutely love it. <laughs> That's good. Well, so, you know, and, and the, the songwriting process. I think there's uh, there's obviously something going on here, just not just uh, sonically, but uh, lyrically as well. You know, when you're sitting there writing these songs on your sister's uh, laptop, it, lyrically, were you a reader? Where, where, where are you coming up from in terms of an approach to the words that go with these sounds? Oh, I mean, I, I, I guess I didn't want to try to be too cryptic or anything. And like, th- there had been like a lot of uh, authors, I guess, that I had been really into around the time that I was writing the songs. I was really into James Baldwin, who kind of had like similar experiences growing up in the church and then like mm-hmm. becoming a writer and right. like traveling and like doing all these like things that are so far away from the background that he came from. You, you dabbled a little, a little bit in journalism. Did you end up getting a degree out of college or did you drop out? Why would you assume yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I finished. I finished school. Did, did you? That's really cool. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things like when you realize, hey, there's no money in this thing. Most people are kind of like, well, maybe I'll try to do something else. Like being a rock and roll band, you know? I didn't do it immediately. I went to New Orleans. That's how I ended up in New Orleans. I just got a job out there working for a nonprofit. Uh, mm-hmm. That was like the only job I could get outside after school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How and, did how did New Orleans? Oh, you know, we've done a couple of interviews in the last two or three years since Katrina of uh, musicians who lived there before, musicians who gravitated there since, mm-hmm. uh, and all of them say it makes an impact on on their lives and on their music. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I started writing like maybe half the songs when I was in Florida, but then the other half in New Orleans definitely sound uh, different. Probably inspired by. I, I was listening to the radio station. There's a radio station called WWOZ down there, which plays like a lot of. Mm. 50s like r&b rhythm and blues kind of stuff mm. and like, i don't that definitely worked its way into the songs that i ended up writing after listening to that like all day every day yeah mm. there's also that rough edge that i hear when you visit there there's a lot of people just sitting up in the street doing their thing and that, and that mm-hmm. by its very nature has almost kind of a very off the cuff rough edge thing we're not worried about the niceties of how this sounds it's more about that feeling yeah definitely i think so with uh everybody who plays there it's it's a good music community because there's we're friends with punk bands and like folk bands and like everybody and everybody's kind of doing different genres but like they're coming at it from like the same kind of place mm-hmm. but the guitar work uh if not super complicated it is ambitious how, how do you approach soloing because they're not traditional tasty licks solos <laughs> i mean you're, you're playing sounds and you're playing moods and you're doing these swooping kind of yeah chords i mean i'm a pretty sloppy guitar player when i first started playing uh you know i was like 13 or 14 and just listened to like nirvana and that kind of stuff so if you listen to like bleach or uh one of those like early nirvana albums like that, that kind of like sloppy like soloing i think has probably worked its way into the songs you know no, I, I agree <laughs> i think cobain was very underrated uh, you know somebody like neil young is somewhat underrated he's a kind of a sloppy yeah. guitar player but you know what i'm thinking of when you're talking about sort of bringing that sort of more sloppy rough edge sound you know the mississippi hill country guys those blues musicians mm-hmm. uh had that feel and to me, that sounds a lot more modern 
than maybe the tr- more pure traditional stuff like the Tasty Licks Eric Clapton approach yeah. sounds very dated, whereas these hill country guys with the drones and stuff like that sound yeah. very contemporary. Yeah, if you listen even re- more recent, like we listen to Junior Kimbrough all the time. Right. Oh, like, yeah. He's got that drone and like just, uh, they don't always hit like all the notes, but it's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. And sometimes sound like three guys playing at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about another song, Benjamin? Yeah, we'll do another song. We'll do another song. Tell us what we're going to hear. This song's called uh, Violent Shiver. This is the single off the record. Shiver from Benjamin Booker and the band Max Norton Alex Spoto have been our guests on Sound Opinions. Ben, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. I will listen to the radio if I like songs produced by 40-year-olds in high-tech studios. To watch videos of Benjamin Booker performing, visit us at soundopinions.org. You can also listen to the album on Beats Music. While you're there, follow Sound Opinions for access to all our playlists. Coming up, a review of the new album from Led Zeppelin frontman Robert Plant, and Greg drops a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. From the day that I...
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. We're here with Greg Cott. And that's a song called Little Maggie, the opening track on the new album by Robert Plant. Lullaby and ellipses, the ceaseless roar. It's a pretty great title, Greg, right off the bat. Everybody knows who Robert Plant is. He was a golden god. He was the leader of Led Zeppelin. He came from the Black Country Hills in England in 1968 and uh, has been going ever since. But you look at the math now, it's almost half a century the plant has been making music. But he has been a solo artist post-Led Zeppelin three times longer than the 12 years he spent in Zepp. He's consistently done brave and interesting things. In addition to pairing up with other bands, something like the Honey Drippers, which was Rockabilly, or uh, what he was doing with Alison Krauss in 2010, Bluegrass, that Raising Sand album. He put back Band of Joy, the group he had as a teenager before Led Zeppelin, and he's made a lot of solo albums. This is the 10th proper solo album, not counting all those other projects. He has a new band. It's called the Sensational Space Shifters. The record's being mixed by Chad Blake, who's done a lot of work with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and with Pearl Jam. What are we getting from Robert Plant this time around? Let's play a song. We'll come back. We'll give our reviews. This is Rainbow by Robert Plant from Lullaby and the Ceaseless Roar on Sound Opinions. I found a lucky charm Dressed up with love Across the seven seas to you Would be enough And I will be a rainbow Oh my, your stone is gone And I will bring the song for you And I will carry on Carry on 
voice but the voice of complaining My hands shall not tremble, my feet shall not falter The void shall not weary, the fear shall not alter That's Rainbow from Robert Plant. The new album is called Lullaby and the Ceaseless Roar. Plant, as you said, Jim, has been away from Led Zeppelin so long, and yet people keep pining for it. And I think yet here is another example of why I'm very happy with Robert Plant doing what he wants to do instead of talking about Led Zeppelin reunions. You can't he's making, go back. You can't go back. Absolutely, and he's making fascinating music on his own. He's got a great band here, the Sensational Space Shifters, he's calling them. They toured North America last year. I happened to see that tour, and it was quite extraordinary what this band was trying to do. One of his key collaborators in this band is a guy named Justin Adams, a multi-instrumentalist, who has worked with the Saharan Desert Blues Band, Tenerowin, and he's bringing this West African sensibility into the band. There's also a Gambian musician in the band who plays this riti, or one-string fiddle, and and you hear that combination of West African polyrhythms and drone with that southern blues sound mm. that Plant loves so much, as well as the Appalachian influence, country music, another thing that he's been studying heavily over the last few decades. You know, people looking for the hammer of the gods are not going to hear it on these uh, recent Plant albums. His voice isn't really in that range anymore, but no. he's singing with more tenderness, if I can use such a word to apply to Robert Plant. I mean, you heard hints of it even in Led Zeppelin. If you listen to, like, Led Zeppelin three, for example, the one thing I do miss is that when I saw this band live, they really could bring the more rocking things to life as well. This album is more focused on the more contemplative, quiet side of, of their range, but it's still a very, very good record. I'm, I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to say buy it. I'll agree, Greg. It's it's definitely a buy-it record. I know what you're saying about the tender plant. He can't do the immigrant song anymore, you know right. what I mean? But 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 why should he? He doesn't want to go backwards anyway. You and I grew up with Led Zeppelin. For God's sake, I have a Led Zeppelin tattoo, okay? Uh, <laughs> you know, but do we love plant, the fact that he's continuing and challenging himself because we love Led Zeppelin? If we were 17 and heard this album today, would it do much for us? I, I don't know. He's gone to the Middle East before. He's gone to Africa before. He's gone to the hills of West Virginia before. I'm glad he's there. I'm really glad he's still making music and he hasn't become a caricature of himself the way that Jimmy Page has. On the other hand, John Paul Jones is really still doing twisted and interesting stuff on the rare occasions when he does it. You know, them Crooked Vultures was really mm. good, okay? I like this album, but I don't love it. So for me, it's a try it versus your buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and play you a song we cannot live without. Greg, what do you got for us? 
Jim, I'm experiencing a wave of nostalgia about the early 2000s, you know, that garage <laughs> rock revival. Back in your youth? Yes, there you go. A lot of American bands, obviously, doing the garage rock thing, especially out of Detroit and New York City. But uh, I loved that Scandinavian wave of garage rockers mm. that were coming to the States around that time, especially from Sweden. There was bands like the Helicopters, who I loved. The Hives got a lot of attention around that time, deservedly so. I think they had a million-selling record in the States. But my favorite band of all that Scandinavian invasion was uh, the soundtrack of our lives. They were a band led by one Ebbett Lundberg, who had been in a number of bands in Sweden in the past, one called Union Carbide Productions that was an early punk band there. And when I first saw him at South by Southwest, I think it was around 2002, it was their first ever tour of the United States. They'd already had three albums out in Sweden, and they were being re-released here in the United States, finally. He wore he was wearing this white tunic. It was like this Scandinavian messiah with this, <laughs> with this beard, and he was walking out into the audience, and it was a completely tongue-in-cheek take on a number of would-be rock messiahs, none of which I will name. You know, I won't want to name Bono in this particular segment because no, no. we don't want to talk about him right now. But Lundberg had it right. I don't think garage rock in particular, that wave of garage rock, did anything particularly new. But what they did well when they did it really, really well was combine the best elements of what had come before and create something fresh out of it. I asked Lundberg about his vision for Soundtrack of Our Lives. He said... Are you a reader of Mojo Magazine? Well, that is what we are. We take the best of the past and put it together. He, he really had this idea that a lot of that had been lost. So he was taking elements of classic rock, post-punk, psychedelia, putting it together. And I think they really nailed it on their third and best album, Behind the Music, which came out in 2001 in Sweden and I think was reissued the following year in the States. Here's a track from Soundtrack of Our Lives, Sister Surround on Sound Opinions. i 
Mr. Surround by Soundtrack of Our Lives, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick this week. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have a show about the finest work songs of all time. Speaking of hard work, Greg, Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez. Our intern is Sam Taylor, and we want to thank Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill for their help this week. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, my name is Peter Malika, and I live in Richmond, Virginia, listen to your show on WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. I want to thank you for your show, one that I heard today on rock operas, my very favorite genre. And I wanted to mention a subgenre, shock opera. Here in town, a local band spelled G-W-A-R, pronounced Gwar. a 30-year-long theatrical show that will put any musicologist hard at work at figuring out. God bless Dave Rocky and Frank Zappa. Thank you for your shows. Remember, music is the best. Enjoy the day. Hey guys, it's Parishnikov calling from Brooklyn. Agree that Jack White has done a ton with his band to uh, increase the sales of vinyl. But a little PSA from all us vinyl nerds out there. If you ever encounter a record that's cut backwards, you don't need to modify your equipment to play it at home. Just drop the needle in the middle, and it'll move its way playing towards the outside. But just remember to catch it when it's done so your needle doesn't fall on the record player. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Love the show. My veins are blue and connected and every single bone in my brain is electric. Greg and Jim, I've just listened to your new wave show and focusing on the very fluff that you said you were going to overcome. No wonder nobody is going to take that music seriously if Tears for Fears is as edgy as you dare to tread. What happened to XTC? And come on, Bananarama as a female role model? What about Lena Lovitz or Susie Sue? Well, I guess it's just shame on me for expecting you guys to actually dispel the myth about crappy new wave artists and just retreading the same old junk and gussying it up as something meaningful.
Hi, this is Eleanor from Homewood. Just listened to your New Wave show. It was great. Very nice nostalgia to go back. I graduated high school in 1980. All the John Hughes films, all that music brought back college to me in a way that only music can do. I think the reason why New Wave didn't get respect was, at the time, I think it was considered almost girly in a way. You know, we had the Southern rock and we had heavy metal and things, and I don't think that people were quite comfortable with the metrosexual aspects of New Wave. But believe me, the girls loved it, as I did. <laughs> Thanks for a great show. Bye. Messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.